there will now be an opportunity for silent prayer or meditation. Thank you, you may be seated. Uh, honorable members, we wish uh, please uh, mute. Uh, we would like to remind you to please keep your masks on and stay where you are allocated. This. Uh, important. The only item on today's order paper is questions addressed to the Deputy President. There are four supplementary questions. This is a reminder on each question. Uh, honorable members, let us uh, give it a please. You are talking too loudly. Adequate notice was given to parties for this paper. This was done to facilitate participation of members who are connected to the, to the virtual platform. Members who will pose supplementary questions will be recognized by presiding officer. In allocating opportunities for supplementary questions, the principle of fairness is always uh, applied. If a member who is supposed to ask a supplementary question through virtual platform is unable to do so, due to technological difficulties, the party will, on duty will be allowed to ask the question on behalf of their member. When all supplementary questions have been answered by the deputy president, we will proceed to the next question on the question paper. The first question has been asked by Honorable K.D. Mashati. Uh, I've been informed that the Deputy President will be answering us through the virtual platform. Honorable Deputy President, welcome. And it's your opportunity to respond to the questions already asked there. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Deputy Speaker. Uh, our response to the first question in December 2019, Cabinet adopted a report on the government's response to the recommendation of the Advisory Panel on Agriculture and Land Reform. Cabinet emphasized the need to move with speed in the implementation of the panel's recommendation to ensure that our land reform program urgently responds to developmental imperative of restorative justice, economic inclusion, and social cohesion. For us, the work of the panel foregrounded the centrality of the three key pillars of our land reform program, namely restitution, redistribution, and land tenure. 
As we implement the panel's recommendations, we will continue to pay equal attention to these key policy instruments while ensuring that our approach to land reform does not impact negatively on agricultural production and the economy in general. More significantly, the constitutionally defined path of our land reform program will continue to focus on balancing the needs of reversing the legacy of land possession and deprivation with the vision of fostering nation building, unity and social cohesion. Access to land is an act of social justice that cannot be delayed. The recommendations of the panel covered a wide range of thematic areas focusing on legislative and policy interventions, integrated land administration, spatial development planning to guide land use decisions, fast-tracking outstanding land claims as well as key measures to accelerate the release of land for redistribution. As government, we are on course in terms of the implementation process. The Interministerial Committee on Land Reform and Agriculture receive regular reports on the implementation of the panel's recommendation and is responsible for ensuring that cabinet is briefed accordingly. With regards to the key legislative and policy intervention, some of the key in, uh, achievements include, but not limited to, the finalization of the expropriation bill of 2020, which is currently before parliament. The finalization and submission to parliament of the land court bill to provide for the establishment of the court that will focus on lead matters, set out clear dispute resolution mechanism and strengthen jurisprudence on land related matters. The adoption of the beneficiary selection and land allocation policy that guides the allocation of land to different categories of beneficiaries. Ensuring that land donation policy is approved to guide land donation transactions by the private sector and institutions that are keen to contribute to our land reform program. Furthermore, cabinet has adopted a position paper on land administration and tenure reform for consultation with various stakeholders. The process of consultation with provinces on the position paper is in progress. This will be followed by the land summit with traditional leaders in order to find common ground on land tenure reform and approaches to land under the custodianship of traditional leaders. Alongside land tenure reforms, the Interministerial Committee on Land Reform and Agriculture has focused on accelerating the settlement of outstanding land claims and handling, 
handing over of title deeds to rightful owners of land. As part of this, we have instituted a coordinated government approach towards ensuring restituted land is coupled with a targeted package of development support to ensure that beneficiaries of restituted land are empowered to utilize their land productively. We are equally making progress on the development of an overarching land administration policy framework that prioritizes the recordal of all land rights. Work on the finalization of the National Development Special Framework is in progress to ensure that it guides overall land use decisions across the country. It will also provide for the alignment of various planning instruments with the context of the district development model. Guided by special development needs, our land reform program is already focusing on the release of strategically located land for human settlement, economic development, and social inclusion. As part of the human settlement framework for spatial transformation and consolidation, 136 priority housing development areas have been declared as spaces for development of human settlements, including including mixed use, high density and multiple typology of housing developments. These developments, honorable deputy speaker, will be supported with the necessary requisite infrastructure to ensure sustainability and better quality of life for our citizens. The release of state owned land is in progress the Minister of Agriculture, Land Reform and Rural Development announced the advertisement of 529,000 hectares of land available for release as part of the 700,000 hectares that was announced by the President in February 2020, State of the Nation. To date, 436 1,563 hectares have been released and approved for allocation under land redistribution program. Over 5,540 hectares of the 436,563 hectares have been approved for disposal and the remainder for leasing. Furthermore, will be releasing state-owned land to address development pressures around urban and rural human settlement, agricultural production, industrial development. The process of releasing state land for agricultural purpose is targeted at vulnerable groups of our society, as we have said before, and will empower women youth and people with disabilities. To ensure that land is productively utilized by beneficiaries, government is paying attention to the provision of effective post-settlement support. We are focusing on improving coordination of integrated post-settlement packages to beneficiaries of land, 
including finance, infrastructure, and access to water resources for development. The Department of Agriculture, Land Reform, and Rural Development has set aside 1 billion rand for the blended financing scheme, of which 200 million rand was authorized to be transferred to IDC for disbursement. This support will go a long way towards supporting the commercialization of black producers in the agricultural value chain. The blended finance scheme is a combination of loans and a grant to support agricultural development and improve access to affordable finance by producers. We are confident that while a lot of work still remains, we have made significant strides in implementing the recommendations of the panel on land reform and agriculture. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Deputy President. The first supplementary will be done by Honorable Makati. Uh, thank you, Deputy President, for your compendious response. You have touched on an important aspect in the development of the agricultural sector, and that is most importantly the post-settlement support and other related challenges of access to finance, lack of adequate agricultural infrastructure, and access to water resources. Now, Deputy President, what are the government's plans in terms of ensuring that water boards across the length and breadth of our country are properly placed at the center or at service of the agricultural sector and, and thus playing a developmental role that will increase agricultural productivity and food security. Thank you very much, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, uh, Deputy President. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. And thanks to the honorable member for the question. We are quite aware, uh, Deputy Speaker, that agriculture is one of the largest consumers of water in the country. That is why government must find a way of upscaling investment in irrigation infrastructure and implement key institutional reform. To, in, to ensure increased agricultural production and food security. To this end, the process is underway to rationalize water ports and establish regional water utilities. We are also in the process of rationalizing uh, the ports itself so that we ensure that they possesses the requisite skills to be able to discharge their work. Skills such as engineering skills, financial skills, legal skills, as well as human resource skills. Relocation of water rights to smallholder farming and farmers will also preoccupy our agenda going forward. To date, the Department of Water and Sanitation has issued 107 water licenses since November 2019. The target for 
is to issue licenses to be used for 1,250 hectares to smallholder farms. We're doing this, Honorable Speaker, Deputy Speaker, to ensure that we open for new entrances and we support them to be productive. Thank you very much. Thank you. The second question will be asked by Honorable Stay. Thank you, uh, Speaker, Deputy Speaker. Thank you. Um, Deputy President, on the 18th of May 2018, that's almost three years ago, President Ramaphosa handed out title deeds in Tembisa during, during his Tumamina campaign. He committed to ensuring that the deeds office would fast track the process of handing out title deeds to the residents and declared title deeds Fridays. Deputy President, since then, I've been inundated by the calls of help for help from black farmers who have received eviction letters from your government. You might have read in the media about Mr. Ivan Flitter, Mr. Viani Zigane, all the farmers in Mulanga, your home province, where they have received letters to evict the state-owned farms. Mr. Akhasi had to take government to court to get title to his land. Please tell me, how many title deeds did your INC government hand out in the past three years? Thank you. Listening to you, Deputy President, answering your question, it sounds Honorable like member, well in this no, Now you are going over time. Uh, members, I want to repeat, you were allocated time. Uh, please, do not exceed it. I'm simply enforcing what you agreed to. You can't change it in the House. Not without the permission of the House. So uh, when I say stop, I mean it. Uh, Honorable Deputy President. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker. I am quite content with the progress that is made by the TIS office because currently, as we're speaking, we continue with our program of handing out title deeds. Uh, in the coming weeks, months, we'll be doing so all over the country. Um, so I'm quite happy with the, the progress that the office is making. But I'm willing, uh, Honorable Deputy Speaker, to take the concerns raised by the Honorable Member of uh, black farmers that are being evicted, uh, that are currently occupying state land, so that we can understand exactly the reasons why are they evicted, and if there's a way we can assist them. Now, beyond this uh, session of parliament, we'll, be, we'll request the honorable member to get in touch with us, us so that we can assist those uh, small emerging farmers. Thank you. Thank you. Akbar Briet, this is a new. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Deputy President, Machabing Local Municipality recently provided 139 farms as guarantee against debt owed to ESCOM. The total value of the farms is 2.5 billion rand. Machabing is not the only municipality in South Africa that owes ESCOM money and surely not the last to provide state-owned land as guarantee for these debts. 
Understandably, ESCOM needs collateral for monies owed, but the reality is that these are farms that could have been used for the government's commitment to release state-owned land. In light of the indication that state-owned land will be prioritized for redistribution, has the government taken into account that land given as guarantee will possibly hamper redistribution thereof? And what is the plan to guarantee these debts should the available land be redistributed? Deputy Speaker, I thank you. Thank you, Honorable President, Deputy President. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Deputy Speaker. We are quite keen to, to investigate the matter of the Machabeng local municipality. Um, in our engagement with all uh, municipalities that are owing ESCOM, we finally reached an agreement that uh, all the municipalities that are owing ESCOM, especially the first 18 municipalities, municipalities that are owing large sums of money, we are going to uh, request ESCOM to take over the distribution and the collection of uh, uh, rates so that uh, finally ESCOM can improve um, the revenue collection of the municipality and allow the municipality to repay its debts. So we are proceeding with the, the Maluti Apofong municipality taking this route, and I'm sure a number of municipalities are going to follow. And I'm confident that the, the land that has been uh, utilized here, the land that has been taken by ESCOM, if we enter into this kind of an approach, that land will be released, will come back to the state, and the state would accordingly redistribute that land to people that needs to farm, especially our small farmers. Thank you very much, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Deputy President. Honorable MGE Hendricks. Thank you very much, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Honorable Deputy President, in 2003, the Commission on Traditional Leadership disputes and claims was established. It was tasked with restoring the dignity of traditional leaders and their communities. The Griqua community, the Khoi community, and the San community, indigenous South African people were dispossessed, having endured much language and do have a culture, but no land, Honorable Deputy President. Are you prepared, Honorable Deputy uh, President, to, to return a pocket of land to show good faith while the Interministerial Committee on Land Reform and Agriculture carries out its mandate to fast-track land reform? These communities can then use the land for agriculture, human settlements, and industrial development. This will be your legacy, Honorable Deputy President. 
and you will be remembered for restorative justice and promoting inclusive economic participation. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Deputy President, Honorable Tola, please uh, mute your system there. Uh, you seem to forget it. it happens too often now. Please close your mic. Deputy President. Thank you. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Firstly, I think uh, we need to address the, the recognition of the Koyan Sen traditional leadership. And that is going to be done through the bill that is before Parliament. Now, secondly, through our redistribution and our restitution program, we are willing to restore land that was dispossessed from these communities, the Khoi and the Sen. Now, in a process, uh, we are expecting them to put a formal claim. And from there, we are going to investigate the claim and we are going to speed it up uh, and ensure that the rightful land is restored to them. But of course, in terms of uh, <clears throat> the traditional leaders, the land that is under their custodian, the communal land, we are now in a process of consulting with traditional uh, leaders on how best to handle Deputy President, one moment. Honorable members, you have invited the Deputy President to answer your question. If you compete with him now, with your whatever you call what you're doing, it's, it's inappropriate. So can you please hold on to your horses? You will get a chance to use your airtime outside the chamber, preferably. Uh, thank you, Deputy President. Please proceed. Yes, uh, thank you. Deputy Speaker, we are in a process of consultation on how best to administer land that is uh, under the custodianship of traditional leaders. We're doing so so that our people living in uh, uh, rural areas under the leadership of traditional leaders must also get the same benefits in terms of the land that they are staying on. They must be able to get title where they stay. They must be able to do land transactions that will allow them to enter into commercial transactions that will benefit them. So at the end of the process, we are going to take the product of that consultation process back to cabinet and the policy will be put in place. Thank you very much. Thank you, Deputy President. Uh, question number eight is asked by Honorable uh, Honorable Deputy President. Members, please uh, notice your microphones and mute them, please. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker. As government, we acknowledge that the economic climate we are currently facing as a country 
it's a very challenging one and impacting on individuals at the household level. Unfortunately, the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic has further compounded our situation. As such, we fully understand the growing calls for ESCOM tariff to be kept at a reasonable level of affordability, especially for our poor and marginalized communities. Therefore, it must be noted that the estimated tariff increase is subject to assessment and decision by the National Energy Regulator of South Africa. All of us should protect the operational independence of our regulator, but still require of it to apply the appropriate tariff mechanism in the determination of tariffs associated with the type of power that is required to balance the system over the medium-term expenditure framework. The Department of Mineral Resources and Energy has advised that if based on weighted average cost per unit of about one rand 57 cents per kilowatt an hour for the preferred bidder proposal, it is estimated that the additional 1,995 megawatts capacity may result in electricity tariff increase of between three and five percent. I must repeat this, that it may result in the increase of the tariff, but will await the decision of the regulator in this instance. It must be noted that the cost includes both the capacity and energy as per the requirement of ESCOM system operator. The nature of electricity supply constraints, which also relate to the increased variability and non-dispatchability of some supply options have necessitated the consideration of the risk mitigation power procurement program in order to alleviate the current electricity supply constraints. The 20-year commitment seeks to, among others, ensure reasonable electricity unit cost while taking into account the sad nature of electricity supply constraints. Basing the risk mitigation independent power producers procurement on a 20-year power purchase agreement will ensure that the projects around this additional capacity remain sustainable. This means that costs are covered whilst guaranteeing capacity that is available to generate electricity whenever dispatch instruction has been activated. The need to attract long-term investment in power generation is key to ensuring the security of energy supply while also realizing expected returns from such investment by the private sector. These initiatives emphasizes government's commitment 
to ensure energy security from a wide range of energy sources and technologies in line with the integrated resource plan of 2019. They further seek to reduce extensive utilization of expensive diesel-based peaking open cycle gas turbine generators in the medium to long term. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker. And uh, Honorable Mailham, it's your chance to ask the first supplementary question. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Deputy President, in the last few weeks, a number of allegations have arisen around the risk mitigation independent power producers procurement program. Specifically, there are allegations that politically connected individuals have benefited from the process and that senior department officials and members of Minister Mantashe's family had attempted to manipulate the process of identifying successful bidders. Additionally, there are questions about one of the bidders who has been associated with corruption in Lebanon, forcing that country to impound their assets. There are also concerns that the request for proposals was drafted with a specific outcome in mind, despite the claim that it was technically agnostic, and that the length of the contracts is not a cost-effective solution to our electricity crisis. While we acknowledge the urgent need to procure additional generation capacity, this cannot occur in an environment of corruption, maladministration, and tenderpreneurship. Last week, the DA requested the Portfolio Committee on Mineral Resources and Energy to investigate the bid adjudication process, the scoring, and the role of politically connected individuals in the process, a request they rejected. My question, Deputy President, is whether you would support a comprehensive investigation by this parliament into this program, and if not, why not? Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Deputy Speaker. I think we'll agree with the Honorable Member that uh, we must at all times uh, fight corruption wherever it emerges. We must be ready as a nation, as a country to fight it. And if these allegations are something that we can believe, I think we must take the necessary measures to sort of cite the relevant institutions about these allegations. For now, I'm taking them as an allegation until we, are, we submit to the relevant authorities so that they are investigated fully. Now, I am not going to instruct parliament on how best parliament should conduct its, uh, its affairs. That will be at the hands of parliament as they do their oversight to take the appropriate actions wherever they feel necessary. But to the honorable member in question, I will suggest that we approach the law enforcement institutions uh, with this allegation so that it can probe uh, further. I'm happy that you are standing up trying to defend your country, uh, defend it against corruption and all that. It's a, good, it's a good move, but let's do it with the appropriate institutions. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, the next honorable uh, 
NLS Kwangwa. DP, thank you very much, uh, Honorable Deputy Speaker. And the challenges in network, you let on the Abu Mizubusu. DP, in particular, as UDM with this risk mitigation power procurement program, is that once again it doesn't seem like at Uholmande who's missing into by Nakwazi to invest renewable energy rather than procuring it, continue to procure that energy from the private sector. Umbuzo omileyo uti. I hope that was open to our now suspend one and not second. Umbuzo omileyo uti, Deputy President. Manyatelo manitinesi uchulmenda watatai ukinse kutika umuva away from diesel, the diesel-based and coal-based from ESCOM. Ibegandi koni investment kuchulmenda ku ESCOM no whole man because a quasbane renewable energy IPPs, for example, a quasbane wind farms instead of just continuing to procure energy from the private sector. In Donin's one whole man who can say a lot. Thank you very much. Remember, Deputy President, Siabonga, Siabonga, Deputy Speaker, Esinga Bushon, you go to Eskom. I company in Kuluga Hulmen. I company Ebene King, Iga Kulu, Esmalin. I company Etonsaranzima, Uguti Batale, Abantu, Abai Sizayo, Abai Sevenzelayo, Ipinde Etonsaranzima, Uguti, Ikubege, Nochelo Loyo, Loguaka. Ama power stations, amasha, amabili, imidupi nogusile. Manjege, ngapamgo ugubayo eskom akubege atate isinyatelo soguti akonu investor guma renewable energy. Kuda ufanelu kutu eskom apeli lisele investment yake ayenzile egusile ne investment ayenzile emedupi. Ngokwe tuge ukubona sizavakashe elikusile ne medupi, siyakabanga ukuthi ikusile ituzane geno ukuthi ingene into full operations, ganye nayo imidupi. Suifunukinisega ukuthi yeskom isebenze ngukuzikhandla ukuze Lauma power stations are mobile, appellant. Isabesia Kubega gay Eskom, Moguvuma, way man, Besia was investor, good renewable energy. But in the meantime, Siabon Wuti, he load shedding le, who shot a energy. Gaylimazi country. Velegs of Fanel Wuti, Sifumela Banya Bant, by produce energy. Sitenge gubu. Eh, Antilu eskom agwazi uguzmel. Into nje esi tembe luguyuguti. Ukesi lo noma ngaba uprochuzo abantu aba private. Nga CEO eskom. Sizomtola nge prize efanele. I national regulator yetule. Uyofalisizo guti. Na noma ubanu stengisela u energy. Simtenge nge prize esizo konwit. Bata Latina, Singabashali, Basemzans. Yabo. 
Thank you. Sia Bonga. Honorable Luzipo, that's for you for the third and the question. Thank you. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Deputy President. I'm sure Deputy President will agree with me that political loud hailing is a very serious disease and it's not a sign of ideological development. And therefore, I'm sure you'll be aware that Parliament has committee and committees of Parliament report to Parliament. I hope when members make themselves political ancestors and speak on behalf of the committee, they will be able to explain that they refused to work in cooperation with one of the most strategic committees of parliament, which is SCOPA. But uh, we will bring the matter obviously to the parliament. I think also there is a dissuasion of the question. Let me go to the original question. Oh, um, please. Just be orderly. Oh, come powerful assembly. Assembly, thank you, thank you. Come on, you don't have to do it repeatedly. You know that, you know the rules, right? No, man, look, look at what you're doing now. You want to engage me about heckling? Chairperson. That's out of order. You shouldn't be doing that. Chairperson. Yes, honorable member. I would like You to... mean deputy speaker, yeah? No, what are you saying? Deputy speaker? Yes. Most of the members are not wearing the masks while they're sitting in here. That's a danger to us. Yeah, no, no, no. That one is out of order. That's sustained, at least here. Honorable members, please put on your mask on. Close your nose as appropriately is required. Okay. Uh, Segala Mongamil. Manjo Umbuza, Umbuzuang, or Songa Paula, Gepulo Hokshiwo, Mautanda, Segala Sumlo. Ka Deputy Speaker, Negan Paul, Lobo Hokshiwo, Moba Umbuza, Uko, without Lindum Booz. Naturalisa, it's Katisinja, Sikuaija. Uh, the last supplementary question uh, is by Honorable Maute. Thank you very much, Deputy Speaker. Deputy President, we are aware that there's no intention to address self-inflicted challenges facing EFCOM because of incompetence and mismanagement. We are also aware that IMF and World Bank pamphlet paraded as national treasury economic recovery policy is the one that is guiding energy policy and privatization of ESCOM. It is irrational and illogical that you can have sensible, practical, and believable plans to solve the energy crisis at the same time entering into corrupt contracts intended to benefit companies linked with the wife of the Minister of Minerals and Energy, with foreign-owned companies fronting local companies in a contract that will cost South Africans 300 billion over the 20 years and pay 14 billion a year for energy when we can pay local renewable energy far less for more energy, or even better, Deputy President, Listen to the EFF sound guidance and re reorientate ESCOM to have a balanced mix of nuclear, coal, gas, and renewable sources built by ESCOM 
employing technicians at ESCOM and ESCOM owning these sources of power. Now, GP, should the government continue to procure energy from service providers and leave ESCOM with no options, but pay prices they did not negotiate? And by when, because we can see that the strategy is to privatize ESCOM. So by when does the government intend to really privatize ESCOM? Thank you, Deputy Speaker. I like your, I like your jersey. Thank you. You are out of order, honorable members. And this is a repeat. Honorable members, this is not a joke. You are given time to stick to it. The next thing you go screaming about how we, we hate you. When you are yourself hating yourself, uh, Deputy President, Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. You are um, out of order. Stop. Now, the first question that I need to address is that uh, as a country, as a government, we must do everything possible to try and assist ESCOM to come out of this problem so that we can have a secure energy supply. This is good for our economy, and this is good if we want to attract investment, and if we want to grow uh, our economic fortunes. It's important that ESCOM be supported by all means. And if the leadership of ESCOM is trying very hard, I think it's important for us to give them the necessary support. I am aware that uh, in the process of uh, procuring whatever in government, there will always be allegations of uh, uh, corruption. And I'm saying as a democratic country, we have got institutions that can really probe these allegations. Let us not talk about it. Let us go and report it to say there's this allegation and this allegation. Let us probe it. But as for the current challenge that we're facing as a country, that we have got a shortage of energy. Now, it's important to address this shortage in the medium term so that we allow our power utility, ESCOM, to deal with its own problem. And of course, as a country, we might think of creating another entity that will sort of support ESCOM. Uh, we can even create three entities that will sort of generate electricity. China has got three entities that are generating electricity and they're all state entities. Now, it's quite clear that we cannot put all our eggs in one basket. We must probably try and create other entities that will relieve the pressure from ESCO. But as we procure, as we do this and this and this, if there's corruption, I think we must deal with it. 
we can't be afraid of dealing with our problem, solving the shortage of energy, and be afraid of uh, buying additional uh, energy. Now, if in the process of buying, the corruption is uh, detected, I think the law must take its, off, its course. Thank you very much. Thank you. The next question is number nine. It's asked by Honorable K.R.J. Mishwe, uh, Deputy President. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Deputy Speaker. The COVID-19 vaccine market, it's a very different market from the usual uh, markets that we know for medicines. Globally, countries have limited options since all COVID-19 vaccine manufacturers have adopted the same approach. Therefore, countries must accept full liability for the vaccines they acquire. In our case in South Africa, it was either we accept these clauses as a country or we do not have access to any of these vaccines. Whilst faced with these conditions, government had a further obligation stemming from these conditions of establishing a COVID-19 vaccine injury no-fault compensation scheme. This is one of the critical components of ensuring that there are no hindrances in South Africa delivering a successful vaccination plan. The scheme will be operational for a limited period. In the main, this scheme will provide expeditious and easy access to compensation for persons who suffer harm, loss or damage as a result of vaccine injury that may be caused by the administration of COVID-19 vaccine specified in terms of regulations at a facility within the country. We have a responsibility to ensure that our people are protected through this scheme. Manufacturers of COVID-19 vaccines will not take any contribution to this no-fault compensation system as this is part of the contractual obligation for all countries that acquire COVID-19 vaccines. We are learning from the recent experience of governments who are reviewing reports of potential cases of severe side effects amongst vaccinated members of their population that such a scheme is very important. The COVID-19 vaccine injury no-fault compensation scheme will contain and minimize the effects that may arise as a response to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. As we take lessons from the implementation of South Africa's COVID-19 response plan, we continue to forge ahead with plans of building capacity to manufacture COVID-19 vaccines locally. Through harnessing our existing manufacturing capabilities in partially state-owned biovac institution, as well as research 
and development capabilities with partners in BRICS. We are encouraged by a recent announcement of an anticipated waiver on intellectual property rights for COVID-19 vaccines that is proposed by South Africa and India and now supported by the United States of America. The proposal establishes a global solution to enhance manufacturing and boost supply capacity and enables coordination and access to information currently under patent protection. For countries that do not currently have manufacturing capacity on certain medical technologies, the waiver could open up more supply options and avoid countries being re reliant only on one or two suppliers. Where supply capacity, it can be repurposed to COVID-19 vaccines production and in this way improve the supply available to all nations. South Africa and Africa as a whole stand to benefit by timely access to affordable vaccines. Alongside these efforts, the South African government continues to ensure that COVID-19 vaccination rollout plan reaches all population groups, providing equal access to those in urban and rural areas of the country. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Honorable Mishra. Thank you, Deputy Speaker, for that reply. I must say that it is concerning to note that manufacturers of COVID-19 vaccines have demanded that countries who use their vaccines should grant them indemnity from prosecution should their vaccines cause injuries or even death in some cases. It is also concerning that these manufacturers have coerced countries using their products to start the COVID-19 vaccine injury no-fault compensation scheme. My question to you, Deputy President, is that if these manufacturers are confident that their products are as safe as they claim, why would they insist on indemnification? And how does government plan to fund this no-fault compensation scheme without their contribution? In light of the poor state of our economy, I want to plead with you, sir, not to support suggestions to impose another levy on South African taxpayers to compensate for liabilities incurred by vaccine manufacturers. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Deputy President. Thank you very much. Uh, we have already acceded to this condition. And as uh, cabinet, we have agreed that we are going to put together this fund because uh, we must proceed with the vaccination process. And uh, that was one condition for us to supply, I mean, to, to sign the agreement. So we have signed the agreements with the intention that we must proceed and uh, vaccinate our nation so that uh, we can fight this pandemic. Of course, in, in medicine, 
whatever medicine you take, uh, Honorable Monsieur, there are side effects depending on uh, the comorbidities uh, that you carry as a human being. Of course, by taking any medication, it might, on the basis of your comorbidities, uh, the side effects affect you. And uh, in that case, you can play uh, because it was in the process of trying to help you. But uh, we just thought that uh, we can't as a country be excluded to this vaccination process just because we are failing to sign and accept this clause. So we've accepted the clause and we are proceeding. And I don't think we are aiming to introduce uh, any tax for that purpose. Uh, but we're proceeding, yes, to establish the fund. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Honorable uh, Wahube, you tend to ask the second supplementary question. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Uh, Deputy President, it has been confirmed over the past week that the COVID-19 variant dominance in India has been detected in South Africa, and experts have also warned that there's a possibility of a new variant during the third wave. These are news that are coming at the back of indications that there are some spikes in infections and that perhaps the third wave might be upon us. Yet this government is yet to vaccinate even 500,000 healthcare workers, despite a commitment months ago that 1.2 million of them would be inoculated. Based on this information, how can we trust that government will be able to roll out the vaccine to the rest of South Africa on Monday, the 17th, when rollout has been criminally slow? Would you also acknowledge that this vaccination program has been a spectacular failure on the part of government? Deputy President. Thank you, thank you, uh, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Yes, we must accept that uh, our vaccination process has been very slow, I think affected by a number of factors. Firstly, you remember the AstraZeneca vaccination that we had to give to the African Union because of our variant and uh, uh, that uh, the vaccination, the vaccine was not really efficient. The efficacy was sort of uh, not up to scratch. So we had to uh, take that vaccines to, to other countries in the, in the continent. Now that was almost a million of vaccines. It took us back in terms of our program, phase one. And of course, the agreement that we've made with Johnson & Johnson was affected by the, the discovery of some blood clots in some of the uh, people that have, uh, have been administered with Johnson & Johnson in the US. And that has also uh, resulted into some delays in uh, the rollout of our vaccination. But with Pfizer, I think we, we have received now almost above 600,000 uh, doses. 
and we will be starting to vaccinate. Of course, Pfizer, it's a, it's a double dose. Uh, it's not the same as the Johnson & Johnson. But we are confident that we are going to receive our Johnson & Johnson uh, supply and we'll be able to catch up uh, our phase one and uh, start in earnest with uh, phase two and move with speed. Of course, our people must understand that uh, our pace of vaccination depends on the availability of the vaccines. If the vaccines are not available, everyone is uh, uh, going for these vaccines. Uh, but as a country, I think we've secured two suppliers, that is Johnson & Johnson and Pfizer. We've signed the contracts, like the minister said, and we've agreed on a certain number of doses, and we're now expecting them to deliver on those doses. So we are going to proceed. Uh, I think we need to be patient. We are going to start on the 17th if everything goes well. Thank you very much. Thank you, President. Uh, the next question, third one, is asked by Honorable, uh, Honorable MD Sengwa. Thank you, Deputy Speaker, Honorable Deputy President. Deputy President, can the Deputy President please provide example of similar compensation scheme in South Africa that give recourse to, for example, children who experience extreme adverse reaction to early childhood vaccinated. I thank you. Deputy President. Thank you, uh, Deputy Speaker. I don't have an example outright from where I'm sitting that I can cite. Uh, but I think uh, we have tried to explain exactly the, the fund and how this fund is going to be utilized and how claimants are going to uh, access the fund and the kind of panel uh, that we're going to set up so that they are going to receive and interrogate the claimants for the correctness of the claims. Uh, that's what I can say, uh, Deputy Speaker. Uh, the last supplementary on this question, um, Honorable Mentel. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Uh, Deputy President, rents and cents are very important on procurement. One of the most concerning things relating to the manner you are acquiring the, these vaccines is the secrecy surrounding the deals you made with these manufacturers. You are hiding behind non-disclosure agreements to prevent scrutiny in relation to the prices of the vaccines and the potential collusion and corruption that will surely happen. The fact that you are hell-bent on getting specific vaccines over others that are proven to work is proof of this collusion. 
what guarantees can you give South Africans that the process followed in acquiring these vaccines is above board and won't compromise our sovereignty? And would you support citizen action to full disclosure of the terms and conditions of your deals with the vaccine manufacturers? The terms you have indicated earlier, as well as the pricing and the full process that you are undertaking to procure. Thank you. Deputy President. Thank you very much. Uh, I think uh, every vaccines uh, that we receive as a country go through a process. Uh, our regulatory bodies will, will check these vaccines, um, whether they are suitable to be consumed by our people. That is why we had to return the AstraZeneca vaccine because of these regulatory bodies that have checked to say, no, this vaccine its efficacy is very low. Now, we don't just simply acquire. We, we follow a process. Of course, the Sputnik from Russia, uh, Sinopharm, Sinovac from uh, China, all those are in the process of being checked by our regulatory institutions, SAPRA, and we have requested them to speed up their check so that we can also acquire some vaccines from these bodies. Otherwise, we wouldn't be delaying our process of vaccination if we have got an option to buy from other people. But whatever we buy, we must check uh, the correctness of that vaccine, of those vaccines. I can assure you that uh, uh, the non-disclosure agreement that we have signed uh, compels the parties not to disclose. Now, I take it that uh, in the final analysis, our Auditor General will be able to see the value for money. Uh, I mean, we'll be able to disclose to such institutions like the Auditor General, to say, why paying so much instead of paying so much? But in this case, it's either you take it or leave it. The price is set, uh, and we negotiate the prices. And in certain instances, uh, they give you a discount, and in certain instances, they don't give you a discount. So. From where I'm sitting, I'm quite confident about the process that we've followed to ensure that there's no corruption in the process. We have got an IMC that is sitting, looking at all these processes, and we are detecting any uh, sign of uh, corruption, and we follow it. So where we are, I'm confident that the process is above board. Thank you very much. The next question is number 10, asked by Honorable Zed Nkomo. Thank you, thank you, Deputy Speaker. We believe that the statistics the Honorable Member Nkomo refers to in her question 
are the results of the labor survey released by State South Africa on a quarterly basis. In part, these figures point to a deep-seated uh, challenge of structural unemployment as one of the key constraints to labor absorption capacity of the economy. Structural unemployment is characterized by a mismatch between the skills that workers can offer and what the sector, in fact, requires. It is for this reason that the Human Resource Development Council is thus focused on ensuring that the education sector provides the necessary required skills that are required by the labor market. Notably, the results of the survey show the impact of COVID-19 pandemic on the labor market, particularly affected individuals in the poorest South African households, the less skilled, the low wage workers, informal workers, those with transient employment and persistent non-employment histories, and persons living in poor urban communities, more particularly women. This is not unique to South Africa, as labor markets across the world have been heavily affected by the impact of COVID-19 pandemic. In our case, overcoming the unacceptably high levels of unemployment and poverty requires us to respond with a range of sectoral and cross-sectoral programs. To this end, the presidency is overseeing the implementation of the presidential employment stimulus, which is focused on coordinating, enhancing and upscaling a range of existing programs across government and through close partnership with the private sector. Among these governments, public employment programs the, the expanded public works program and the community works program, which have been supported to roll out public employment at a new and elevated scale. In terms of the expanded public works program, Honorable Deputy Speaker, we have as government set a target of 694,000 155 jobs and livelihood opportunities. Thus far, we are implementing 576, 674 opportunities, which is almost 83% of the program. Through these programs, there is a concerted effort of investing in public goods and services to en that can enhance skills and employability and ensuring that support to livelihood is realized while the labor market recovers from the COVID-19 pandemic. Furthermore, the presidential employment stimulus is designed to effectively transition young people into the labor market, aiming to significantly 
reduce the high rate of unemployment. In this regard, government has, among others, implemented the following intervention. Basic Education Employment Initiative, which has placed over 317,000 young people as school assistants since October last year. This is a massive scale-up of rapid rollout. These young people are earning the national minimum wage, which enhances the impact of poverty and inequality. The Department of Public Works and Infrastructure has created 1,886 work opportunities for young professionals in the built environment. These beneficiaries, Honorable Deputy Speaker, were deployed and exposed to workplace experience, experiences in programs such as the Wellesies with Bridge programs, in-house construction projects, water and energy efficiency program, and facilities management employment, among others. Government has managed to create 865,495 work opportunities from 12,869 projects implemented across all expanded public works program sectors in all spheres of government so far in the 2020-21 financial year. In addition, the various programs which are led by the Department of Social Development have in a way contributed to countering the impact of unemployment and inequality at the household level. For instance, the Social Distress Relief Grant is currently supporting more or less 5 million people in South Africa, of which 2 million people are young people under the age of 35. Although this expanded relief package is temporary, we have witnessed the reduction of poverty at food poverty line to 18%. In the medium to long term, such social relief assistance will need to be supported through sustainable employment intervention, especially targeting young people. This is clear evidence of the need to expand this presidential employment stimulus program, coupled with active labor market program to effectively address poverty and inequality. We believe that creating employment, addressing inequality and alleviating poverty, not mutually exclusive. And there are pathways of ensuring service delivery as seen in the expanded public works program. Therefore, government, honorable deputy speaker, will continue to ensure that interventions listed earlier will continue to improve the lives and the livelihoods of all South Africans. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, President. Uh, Honorable Zetu Komo, it's your turn to ask the first supplementary question. Uh, thank you, Deputy Speaker. 
General Mongameli, as long as your response that you have gave to us, indeed, it is evident from your response that in spite of all the changes that relate to unemployment, poverty, and inequalities, the ANC-led government is working very hard to address these challenges. My follow-up question, General Mongameli, is that what will be the impact of addressing unemployment, poverty, and inequalities to rural and township economies, in particular on women, youth, and persons with disability? I thank you. Thank you, Deputy President. <clears throat> thank you, thank you, Deputy Speaker. In the main, township and rural economies uh, are characterized by small and medium enterprises. And as government, if we support these enterprises, we'll ensure that we create expanded opportunities for job creations, which will contribute in elevating unemployment, poverty, inequality, thereby improving our people's life, especially women, youth, and persons with disability. For our part as government, in March 2020, the Department of Small Business Development launched the Township and Rural Enterprise Program in order to support small businesses to alleviate the negative impact of the pandemic. The focus of this program is on macro and informal businesses to restart, rebuild and improve their businesses as part of the reconstruction and recovery process. Through this township and rural enterprises, we, uh, we want to support them so that they are sustainable and they get to be linked to local markets, provincial markets, and national markets. So we'll continue to work with these small enterprises, Honorable Deputy Speaker, because these are the instruments that we can use uh, to alleviate poverty, unemployment in those rural setups. Thank you very much. You, Honorable Dana. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Honorable Deputy President, you've just now mentioned the so-called employment opportunities created by government. But this morning during the Portfolio Committee meeting of the Department of Employment and Labor, the ANC members of the committee vehemently defended the Department of Labor's failure to deliver on the expanded mandate of employment creation citing the COVID pandemic as the one and only reason for this failure. Deputy President, I put it to you that the enemy of employment creation and skills development in South Africa is not the COVID pandemic, but ANC policies that destroyed the economy and its development prospects long before the pandemic. I put it to you that the government, no, neither, uh, and also not the Department of uh, Employment and Labor cannot create employment opportunities. Do you agree? Then show us. Do you agree? If not, what then is the reason for your failure? Because that is all we see, failure. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Uh, Deputy President. <coughs> Thank you. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker. I must put it uh, up front that uh, governments all over the world are not the source of creating employment. Governments all over the world 
are responsible for creating the necessary environment so that the economy can thrive, people can find jobs, supporting small, medium enterprises, supporting companies so that they can produce services, goods and services, and they can employ people. In a situation where government now becomes the main employer, you must know that in that country there's a problem. So in our case, uh, members should be aware that uh, because of this pandemic, a lot of businesses had to close down. And in the process, a number of people lost their jobs, especially the SMEs. They've closed down in their numbers. That is why government had to step in and support these SMMEs so that they don't get out of business. In this case, even big business have been affected. So we had to do everything in our power to try and sustain these businesses. But in our, naturally, I think we are responsible to creating the necessary environment for businesses to thrive. Remove any blockages, remove any delays in terms of our legislation so that businesses can, can thrive. That is our responsibility as government. And we will continue to do that. We are talking about government's initiative to create employment because we're in a situation where there's a dire need. Our people are hungry, our people are dying, our people have lost jobs. So government had to step in with all these varied programs so that at least there's food on the table. That is why we opted for this 350 uh, the grant. That is not going to be a, a long-term grant. It's going to be a short-term grant because we are dealing with a short-term problem. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Thank you. The next question, the third one, is asked by Honorable Subambo. Honorable Subambo, are you here? Sorry? Deputy Speaker? Yeah. What do you need from me? Honorable Men, what's the ways, Honorable Chibambo? I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, uh, Deputy Speaker. Honorable Mentor will, will take over. I'm here. Go ahead, Honorable Mentor. All right, thank you, Deputy Speaker. Deputy President, there are no public employment programs in South Africa. The EPWP has proven not to add any value. We also know that the employment tax scheme that was intended to incentivize the employment of young people has failed dismally. Instead, EPWP is used by municipalities who don't want to hire trained professionals 
when there are vacancies, instead exploit unemployed people to pay them stipends under the guise of the EPWP. We also know that today the number has decreased to just over 15 million. This is more than 1 million jobs lost. Unemployment in 2018 was 26.7. Today, unemployment is more than 33%. That's more than 10.3 million young people. Do you agree that unless South Africa links industrialization with state procurement, including state-owned entities, whereby the government buys the majority of its goods and services used to deliver services from local manufacturers, we will not be able to deal with the problem of service delivery in any significant way. If you agree, why is the government not doing this? Thank you. Deputy President. Thank you, thank you, uh, Honorable Deputy Speaker. I'm not aware of uh, the allegations of people abusing the expanded public works program. Probably it might be there, uh, but I'm not aware. Uh, we agree with the Honorable Member that expanded public works program is meant to provide temporary cushion to those that are employed. It's not a permanent a job opportunity. I think we agree there. But in the process, we assist individuals to acquire some skills uh, in the projects where they participate. That skill can help them to find employment elsewhere and probably might move to some permanence. Yes, we agree with the honorable member that as government, I think we should support industrialization and we should be providing ourselves as the basic market where all these small, medium enterprises can provide services to government. All the services that we consume to government can be used to support industrialization. Hence, all our economic zones that we've established, we are trying very hard to try put together SMMEs in those zones so that they start producing goods and services. And this government will remain open to buy those goods and services in order to support industrialization. Thank you very much. Thank you. Honorable Telezi is asking the last supplementary on this question. Um, thank you, Honorable Deputy uh, Speaker. Can the Deputy President tell us what measures other than job placement are being used as indicators of success in the fight against unemployment? Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Thank you, Deputy President. Thank you very much, Honorable Speaker. Any program that we create as government that is aimed at uh, alleviating unemployment, the best and single indicator is the creation of the employment itself. And we count the number of people that have, employed, that have been employed in that program. And we count the successes in terms of the skills that have been acquired in that program, 
and then we can say that program has been successful or has not been successful because the people, yes, they were employed, but they could not gain the required skills. But in the main, all the programs that we have started, especially the one we're supporting assistant teachers uh, in our basic education program, all these young people, they were there, they were supporting teachers, they've gained some knowledge on how teaching and learning happens in a school. They've assisted learners to learn. And I'm sure there's knowledge that they've gained through their participation at that level. But the, uh, the, the most important thing is that they have been employed and in the process we have reduced unemployment by those figures that have been employed. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, the question 11 is asked by Honorable Sheikh Imam. Honorable Deputy President. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Every five years, government undertakes a comprehensive review and assessment of progress made to address challenges of joblessness, poverty, and inequality. In addition, government conducts reviews of the mid-term strategic framework, quarterly and annual assessments to evaluate progress made and challenges encountered in the implementation of varied anti-poverty anti programs. Such assessments and critical instruments to gauge how far we have come to eradicate structural inequality and create an inclusive society. The 25-year review released in 2019 identify, among others, the following constraints. Structural inequality, slow redress and transformation, limited state capacity resulting to inability to utilize policy and legislative framework to redress and transform. In this regard, the state has not been able to transform the growth trajectory towards inclusive growth that will create jobs for the labor force that the country has. Corruption, real and perceived, has hampered the delivery of services, further entrenching inequality of opportunity and constraining the ability of state-owned enterprises to contribute opt optimally to the developmental agenda and inadequate and crumbling infrastructure. On the contrary, the 25-year review has also indicated the following trends for our national democratic society. Notable and quantifiable progress has been made in the provision of basic services, such as water, sanitation, electricity, employment, and housing. For the millions of beneficiaries of these services delivered by post-1994 administration, 
Notable progress has been observed on government's effort to change the lives of South Africans for the better. Life expectancy has improved and infant mortality has reduced significantly, whereby, for example, access to antiretroviral therapy has grown from 45,500 patients in 2004 to over 4.7 million in 2019. The school nutrition program, which feeds approximately 75% learners per day per year has a long-term impact for learners who stay in school and complete their education, thus acquire qualification that can increase their probability of employment and income, thus escaping from poverty and inequality. We further observe that social grants remain the country's largest contributor to efforts of poverty alleviation. This intervention has been able to reduce poverty at the lower bound poverty line by 16.4 percentage point from 42% to 25.7% as at the end of 2019. However, according to State South Africa, as at March 2020, 20% of the South African population was living below the food poverty line. This will have increased by 33% by June 2020 as a result of the COVID-19 and the consequent lockdowns. Therefore, there is a huge opportunity to alleviate poverty through social grants to ensure sustainability of such intervention. There is a need to link the provision of social grants to skills development and creation of local economic development projects. Honorable Deputy Speaker, there is not denying that inequality still persists. In fact, the phenomenon of COVID-19 pandemic, like almost every, everywhere else in the world, has exposed and exacerbated South Africa's structural inequality. Most worryingly, social groups who have borne the brunt of this inequality are women and young people. In fact, government responsibilities are now... Oh no, and please. The impact of the COVID 19 pandemic. It is not an exaggeration that this pandemic has significantly reversed the gains we've made since 1994. In this regard, government is forging ahead with the implementation of priorities identified in the National Development Plan which remains a long-term policy framework leading to 2020. The anti-poverty initiatives of government 
that in the main focuses on the integration of our public employment programs are starting to bear some positive outcomes in mitigating the current impacts of poverty and inequality, as we have mentioned in our earlier response. Further, this was highlighted last week in this house by the president when he indicated that the public employment stimulus is effective in protecting existing jobs and supporting livelihood. While these elevation programs are vital, long-term solutions depend on our ability to achieve inclusive growth by among others, implementing reforms that are crucial to sustain economic recovery and to address the underlying causes of low economic and high unemployment. In this regard, the Operation Vulindlela is directly addressing reforms by reforming network industries to modernize and transform the economy, lower barriers to entry to make it easier for businesses to start, grow and compete in order to ensure economic inclusion, resulting in high levels of employment. Linked to this intervention is the Economic Reconstruction and Recovery Plan which presents a comprehensive policy response to rebuild the economy that has been negatively affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Obviously, more still needs to be done to broaden people's share in the country's wealth so that we give full material meaning to building a social cohesion and nation building. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Deputy President. I'm, I'm informed that Honorable P. Mudise will take this press supplementary on behalf of Honorable Sheikh. Oh, is that? Yeah, it's, shake, it's Sheikh Imam now, uh, Deputy Speaker. Oh, okay. No, no, no. I was given wrong information. Sorry. Uh, please go ahead, Honorable Sheikh Imam. Please reprimand them, Deputy Speaker. Thank you very much. Uh, Deputy President, thank you for admitting and acknowledging, yes, indeed, that we have great challenges. And yes, we've gone backward as a result. Of course, I know you say it's as a result of COVID. But what I want to draw your attention is that more people go hungry to bed today than five years ago. More people are homeless today than five years ago. More people are jobless today than five years ago. More people are in debt today than five years ago. More women are today the victims of gender-based uh, gender violence than five years ago. Now, what has happened in South Africa is just that we created a whole group of millionaires, something like 17,500, why millions more have gone poorer in South Africa. Now, and I know that there's been some initiative, but clearly it means that the initiatives and measures that we put in place, Deputy President, are not good enough. I don't think we're considering the uh, population growth in the country, the influx of foreign nationals, the 300 billion rand that we use, those in this country through the procurement processes, the fact that people from rural areas are migrating to urban areas and urban areas cannot accommodate them because of limited opportunities there. Now, how are we going to do this differently? Clearly, I think we need some policy 
redirection in order to be able to address this together with the, the cheap imports that's coming, which is limiting manufacturing in South Africa. So there's a whole host of it, uh, Deputy President. You could just give us an indication how we're going to address this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable De Deputy Speaker. We must acknowledge that uh, the emergence of COVID-19 has taken the country 10 steps backwards. Why am I saying so? It's because we had to go through a period of a lockdown. And remember, we went into this COVID-19 situation with a very ailing economy. Our economy was not very good. And uh, we went right into a recession. During the COVID-19 period, the worst period 2020, the economy gone, has gone west. A lot of our people have lost their jobs, they've lost income, and this government we had to step in. And we must accept that uh, for the very fact that uh, companies had to close down, as government, we lost a lot of revenue. We lost a lot of money that we could have reinvested into building of houses, building of schools, building of roads uh, for the past year. Now, we are talking of a situation where we must rebuild. We are rebuilding coming from a very low base. So the Honorable Member, Sheikh Iman, will agree that uh, this democratic government since 1994 has made some strides in uh, giving people water, in building roads, building schools. But of course, the happenings of the past year has taken us backward. Now, the future looks very bleak because we are still in the COVID-19 situation we are still battling the pandemic, but I'm confident that beyond this pandemic, we are going to grow our economy, not only growing the economy, but growing the economy that will create jobs. Now, it's one thing to grow an economy without the necessary creation of employment. In this case, we are going to ensure that as we grow the economy, it's coupled with the creation of uh, employment. We accept the reality that is confronted with us currently, but we are confident that we are going to change this reality. We have got a plan. We have put that plan before the country. The president has put that plan. We are going to follow that plan to try and recover this economy, to try and get the country back into work again. Thank you very much. Thank you, the President. The, the 
Next, second supplementary, uh, which was meant to be asked by Honorable Gungubela, will be taken by Honorable Mudise. That's the mistake I made earlier on. Uh, go ahead, Dati. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Speaker. Uh, Dumela DP. Dumela. DP, noting the current socioeconomic conditions and the impact of coronavirus pandemic, what are the expected tangible outcomes from poverty alleviation programs of government? And how will the reprioritization of funds to support the implementation of the economic reconstruction and recovery plan make an impact to reduce poverty, reduce unemployment and inequality, particularly for the poor and the vulnerable masses of Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, President. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. The creation of jobs is right at the center of the South African economic uh, reconstruction and recovery plan to get our people back to their jobs, which they lost during the course of this pandemic. Government has committed almost over 100 billion over the next three years to create jobs through public and social employment as the labor market recovers, targeting of almost 800,000 employment opportunities that can be created over the medium term period. The process of reprioritizing funds, government is utilizing that process so that we can prioritize funds to infrastructure investment as a very important pillar that we think can boost our economic recovery. This can help us to fix the ailing infrastructure network industries while improving the country's competitiveness and also creating opportunities for mass employment and skills development. So we're going to lift infrastructure investment as one priority that will help us restore our economy. However, to accelerate the economic recovery and reconstruction, there's a need to implement some reforms to address the underlying causes of low economic growth and high un unemployment. To this end, the president and national treasury is implementing the Operation Volindlel. These structural reforms are intended to change the structure of our economy to reduce input costs, lower the barriers of entry, and increase competition. Structural reforms will further lower costs and provide greater efficiency, which will increase the competitiveness of the economy and create new opportunities for investment. 
We have slowed down in terms of our investment drive because every country, everyone is focusing on dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. But of course, we continue to count on the investment that we have received and that is being implemented as we speak in the country. Although the process is very slow, we are hopeful that as we deal with this COVID-19, we'll be opening a way for this investment to be speeded up. So besides investment, it will be very difficult for this economy to recover. And as government, I think we need to create the very conducive environment for these investments to happen. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Thank you. Uh, the, the third supplementary is by Honorable Gigi Hillui. Thank you very much. I must say it's very interesting that the Deputy President's Twitter account tweeted that answer to that follow-up even before it was asked. But you must mind your time, please. I have no, that's part of my question. It's just miraculous. There must be telepathy. But any honest assessment of the government's performance in uh, combating poverty and getting people uh, into jobs must accept that every single one of the big, major, centralized service departments in government is in various states of collapse. ESCOM, PRASA, SAA, Post Office, Home Affairs, Police, I could go on and on. Is it not time that the deputy president and his government be honest about the fact that the ANC's model of the, the developmental state is broken and that those services should be devolved down to the lowest capable, competent government that can actually deliver them. Thank you. Deputy President. Thank you very much. Well, we still believe that uh, whatever the challenges that we are faced with as a government, are challenges that uh, we can deal with. The problems that are affecting all our state-owned enterprises, we are dealing with those challenges. We have dealt with SAA, we are dealing with ESCOM, we're dealing with Transnet, we're dealing with Danel. And uh, there's increased capacity that we are putting in in those SOEs. And I'm sure it will take some time to turn them around. I'm confident that uh, we're on the right track. Uh, it's a question of time. Of course, what is uh, compounding the situation is the advent of COVID-19. So the situation is looking more bleak because of COVID-19 everything has been slowed down. But the work that is done currently by Minister Gordon in the different uh, uh, state-owned enterprises, it's a very good piece of work, needs to, be, needs to be supported. And I'm sure through time, we are going to reap the benefits. Now, our workings as government I must admit that has been affected by the COVID-19. We are not working 
as we are required. Most of the time you can see even in this house, uh, we are talking through the hybrid model. We are connected there virtually and we are not uh, supposed to uh, be in gatherings of more than uh, 500 people out there. So everything that we're doing is limited and it's constrained by the regulations so that we can avoid uh, spreading COVID-19. That means as a country, as a world, we are learning to live with COVID-19, but continue to work, continue to address our challenges. So everything is not really bleak. Uh, I think we'll find our footing, we'll be able to adapt to this uh, uh, virus and be able to move a bit faster. Thank you very much. Thank you, Deputy President. Honorable S.A. Bikelezi. Um, thank you, Honorable Deputy, um, Deputy Speaker. Um, what initiatives will government commit, commit to, rather, over the next 24 months so as to encourage business growth with corporate social initiatives to reduce the triple threat of unemployment, poverty, and inequality. Additionally, please outline what programs are specifically designed to address the triple threat for youth, given that South Africa has the highest youth unemployment stats on the continent. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, President. Thank you, uh, Honorable Deputy Speaker. We have presented our recovery plan, our economic recovery plan, which focuses on a number of sectors. And we're going to pursue that recovery plan. But as we pursue this recovery plan, we are going to intervene when necessary to try and create employment. That is why the employment stimulus. So we should not look at the stimulus package as something that is going to be a mainstay. The mainstay is the recovery plan. I have said we have prioritized infrastructure and we're doing very well. We've identified all those projects and currently we are working. These projects are continuing on the ground. We are dealing with challenges that we are confronting on the ground, stoppages and all that. And we hope we're going to handle those pro uh, projects. But in the process, as we uh, deal with the recovery plan, we are confident that uh, some amount of jobs are going to be created. And of course, the economy gradually will open up and allow more and more new entrances. And as we try to build the economy, 
we are confident that new enterprises are going to stem up and uh, uh, come into action so that uh, more and more people can be employed. In this case, we are counting uh, our SMMEs as the best platform where we can create more jobs and we can make them enter the economy. So we are confident that uh, the recovery plan, if well uh, implemented with a clear focus, we are going to gradually get out of uh, this economic mode. Now we are mindful of the pandemic. Of course, we worried about the rise in infections, which might uh, require some strict uh, regulation so that uh, it should not spread. So it's important to call on all our people to really adhere to the protocols so that we don't get into the third wave. That can further hurt our economy. So we must avoid it by adhering to the protocols, wearing of masks, keeping the distance and sanitizing. So it's not going to be a difficult, I mean, easy journey to get out of this current situation. It's going to be a very tedious exercise, but I'm hopeful that day by day, the amount of energy that we put in the reconstruction of our economy will finally see the light of the day. Thank you very much. Thank you. The last question is asked by Honorable Seabe. Thank you, uh, Honorable Deputy Speaker. The South African National AIDS Council has a multi-sectoral structure that fosters dialogue and consensus between government, civil society, business and labor, has several governance structures, including the Program Review Committee. This structure provides technical expertise and guidance on the programmatic activities of the implementation of the National Strategic Plan for HIV, TB, and STI. Since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, SANA continues to receive regular updates on the implementation of COVID-19 programs, as well as on the impact of COVID-19 on TB and HIV program. These updates have specifically been on the integration of HIV, TB and COVID-19 programs. And most importantly, on the fast tracking of HIV and TB catch-up plans by provinces. These plans are being implemented by relevant government departments, such as health, higher education, and social development to make up for HIV and TB client losses due to COVID-19 pandemic. Current practice 
at every health facility is to screen everyone who presents any ailment for TB symptoms. However, the recently released results of the TB prevalence survey showed us that symptom screening on its own has got a low sensitivity peak up rate for TB cases. As a result, non-symptomatic patients tend to be missed in the process. To address this gap, we have introduced routine testing irrespective of symptoms for certain high-risk groups, people living with HIV, contacts of all people diagnosed with TB, and people who have been previously tested for TB in the past years. This is what we refer to as active case finding, which is done to make sure that the spread of the disease is minimized at community level. The department is running a welcome back to care campaign, which have been activated nationwide in order to bring back all those who were on HIV and TB treatment, but had treatment interruptions due to COVID-19 pandemic. This will ensure that patients with TB continue with their medication until they are no longer infectious and indeed until they are cured. For HIV infected patients, Getting back on medication will make their viral load suppressed, which minimizes the risk of the viral transmission and the spread of the virus. A lot of these services, including testing and screening, are being offered at the community centers, away from hospitals, and patients are even able to collect medication at Pharma Locus and their local retail pharmacy as part of government central chronic medication dispensing and distribution program. If such patients, they don't wish to visit health facilities. Between June and September 2020, the Sana Trust held a series of country dialogues with critical stakeholders to ensure that HIV, TB, and STI response was sustained and called for the dual testing of COVID-19 and TB. This led to the resource mobilization for both PEFA and the Global Fund to invest in strengthening HIV and TB programming to mitigate the negative impact of COVID-19 on our health system. The SANAC Interministerial Committee has since approved an integration of HIV and AIDS, TB and COVID-19 programs, as well as fast-tracking HIV and AIDS, TB catch-up plans in order to make up for HIV and AIDS TB client losses due to the COVID-19 pandemic. 
In addition, considering the negative impact of COVID-19 pandemic on the achievement of both national and global targets, Sanat plenary resolved to extend the term of the current national strategic plan for HIV, TB and STIs so that it ends in 2023 and not in 2022 as initially intended. This extension will allow SANAC sectors some time to implement catch-up plans that are aimed at accelerating the provision of services towards the attainment of the set targets. While we have surpassed the target with respect to the percentage of people knowing their HIV status, more efforts are still required with respect to enrolling people on antiretroviral treatment and ensuring that they are virally suppressed. Even more efforts are required to help us meet our 1990-90 targets for TB. To this end, we have met the civil society to discuss these challenges and agreed to continue working together to address the identified shortfalls. The civil society sector of SANAC responded swiftly to support the country's health system by collaborating with other civil society formation to establish the community constituency COVID-19 front within NEDLEC. This initiative entail an integrated response to COVID-19, HIV and TB using technology with a particular focus on advocacy, social mobilization, public awareness, legal support, and promotion of human rights as well as contact tracing and screening. Community health workers also continue to provide a vital service in support of the country's health system by reaching out to patients and community members who require healthcare assistance. This includes conducting household visits to monitor HIV and TB patients and ensuring that they do not default on their treatment. Honorable Deputy Speaker, I want to commend all civil society formation and community healthcare workers for their hard work and commitment in supporting our health system. We also take this time to encourage everyone to come on board and work together to ensure that we achieve the targets that we have set for ourselves for HIV, AIDS, and TB screening and testing. We call upon our communities to come out to screen and test to ensure that they receive the necessary assistance through our facilities. We must also take responsibility for our own health. As we continue our efforts of vaccination, uh, vaccination rollout, we continue to appeal to all of us to continue to observe COVID-19 protocols and employing all non-pharmaceutical interventions and behavioral change to stem off 
further infections as we confront new wave of infections. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Deputy President. Honorable AMCR. I don't know why I'm assuming. Uh, <laughs> okay. Thank oh, you. I know I'm right. So go ahead, Nat. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Order, Chief Whip, order. Go okay. ahead, Nat. Order sustained. Um, thank you, Deputy Speaker, once more, and good afternoon to the Deputy President. And thank the Deputy President for the comprehensive response, which is highly informative. Deputy President, the experience we are taking home from the advent of this pandemic, COVID-19, is that as a society, we are adapting to the changing world, where we are now continuing with our life, doing things online. This also, we see government coming on board with the introduction of systems such as the electronic vaccination data and COVID alert South Africa as a way of enabling people to continue registering for inoculation online. My question, Deputy President, is how is government planning to expand such systems in the fight against TB and HIV and AIDS, continue encouraging people to screen and test. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you very much. And you stayed very much within your time frame. Thank you. Deputy President. Thank you, um, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Uh, correctly, uh, government is taking up the challenge. For instance, the Department of Health has already introduced a mobile application for screening and reporting on all the expanded screening activities. For example, patients are now able to collect their medication at pharmacy lockers as part of this central chronic medication dispensing and distribution program. The Department of Social Development has developed a phone application to provide support to teenagers and young adults to overcome social and behavioral drivers of HIV. SANAC has also developed community-based measures in responding to COVID-19, HIV, and TB using technology named Tusa Sichaba, which allows identification of issues as well as responses at a household level. In addition, civil society has also developed a multifaceted digital response system called the Communication Master web-based platform, which includes behavior change communication on access to services, testing, non-pharmaceutical methods for prevention, as well as personal and respiratory hygiene. These are some of 
the technological advances that we have created as government and will continue to adapt as we move on. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Thank you very much. Uh, Honorable E.R. Wilson, you ask me second. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Deputy President, only 3.5 million South Africans have been registered on the chronic medicines and dispensing system. However, Deputy President, we know that there are in excess of 7.5 million HIV and AIDS patients in South Africa requiring care. And this does not include those with heart conditions, diabetes, and other conditions which require monthly life-saving medication. The chronic medicine dispensing system is therefore planning and ensuring that adequate supplies of life-saving drugs are available at the right facilities and that appropriate care is available at all times. Instead, the sick and vulnerable find themselves traveling at costs and queuing at facilities day after day, week after week, sometimes month after month, because the medicines critical to their survival is not available. What are you going to do, Deputy President, to ensure that this is sorted out and that these people get the required care in terms of the Constitution? I thank you. Um, Honorable Wilson, can I give you unsolicited advice? When you leave your question to the last minute, you go over the boundary of your time allocation. And it's not nice for me to have to tell you to stop. In future, can you start with your question and then motivate it? I don't, I don't have to get involved in the contents. I'm just talking about time allocation. I want to have my conscience clean when I stop you, stop your time off as allocated to you. In future, please, uh, members, all of you, uh, think about that. Start with your question. And then you can then say whatever else you want to say, of course, within the rules. Uh, with respect, I really respect the time you are allocated. Deputy President, please go ahead. Thank you, thank you, uh, Deputy Speaker. Um, the Honourable Member is correct. And uh, I've said in the beginning that uh, Sanak Plenary has adopted a catch-up plan precisely because of the realization that we have lost a lot of time. We have switched our focus, uh, paid more attention to COVID-19, and somewhere uh, we relegated HIV, TB to the background. Now, we are now launching this catch-up plan to say we are going to find the missing HIV uh, people that were taking our medication, the missing TB people that were taking our medication, and we're utilizing our home-based care that are rooted in our communities to find these patients so that we can re-enroll them to our chronic medication scheme. So we are on track, we've realized that, and we accept 
the fact that uh, we've lost a bit of time. That is why we're extending the implementation of the national strategic uh, 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 plan and we're allowing the catch-up plan to take place so that we catch up on all the people that we've lost, uh, the people that are missing are out there. And I'm sure we are going to find those people and enroll them in our chronic medication system. Thank you. Thank you, Deputy President. Uh, Honorable Ngozi. It's me, Deputy Speaker. I was going to take uh, the question. Kalipi. Okay. Go ahead, Honorable Kalipi. Thank you very much, Deputy Speaker. Deputy President, what short to medium term actions will you be taking to address the dramatic collapse of public health services in the country and in the Eastern Cape in particular? Because long before COVID-19, the public health system was in deep crisis in this country, struggling to cater for vast majority of people who depend on public health services. During the pandemic, we have seen a total collapse of the system across the nation, but more specifically in the Eastern Cape. The elderly people are subjected to long queues at the clinics the whole day. There is no medication. Nurses and doctors are overworked. There are no ambulances. Almost everything has totally collapsed. So what short to medium actions are you going to take, Deputy President, to address this pandemic on its own? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Honorable Deputy President. Thank you very much. Uh, well, the situation, as you're explaining it in the Eastern Cape, I think we'll try and investigate it. Uh, the Minister of Health has been there several times to try and work with the provincial leaderships so that our people get assisted there. But I beg to differ with the honorable member in terms of the collapse of the health system. I think by and large, our health system has carried us up to this far. We have gone through the first wave of the pandemic. We have gone through the second wave, difficult. But the system, the health system, stood the test of time. I mean, you are a witness that uh, all over the country, provinces were busy erecting temporary structures, putting additional beds. We have confronted the pandemic. And I can say we have succeeded. But in the, in the process, there are casualties. We have lost some of our people. The health system has tried. That is why we, we sort of relegate some of our programs, like our HIV program, our TB program, and we focus on the COVID-19 pandemic. To be fair enough, if I assess our health system, it has done relatively well. We continue to experience problems, COVID-19 is still with us. Of course, uh, pandemics like HIV, 
TB are still with us. Therefore, our health system is still under pressure. We must continue to assist wherever we can. And I'm sure uh, SANAC, uh, Social Development, Department of Health, the Interministerial Committee uh, on uh, uh, HIV and AIDS, SANAC, all of us are going to put our hand and assist the Department of Health, the system not to collapse. But so far, we've done very well as a country and we want to thank cabinet for the support that has been given to the department and the financial support uh, in terms of buying the PPEs, buying the necessary med medication, supporting the screening and tracing process. All those programs wanted money and our government made it possible that all these happened. Thank you very much. Thank you, Deputy President. Honorable Misha. Um, Deputy Speaker, with your permission, I'll take the follow-up. Okay. Go ahead. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Um, thank you for the response. I, I'll start with a question, and that is, what role can civil society play more in assisting the catch-up program, and in particular, the religious community? Let's just analyze. The Home Affairs Department recorded 443,551 natural deaths for the whole of 2020. Of that, 28,460 <coughs> were tragically COVID-19 related. That means 415,000 people died of other natural causes, AIDS, TB. That is 1,000 <laughs> per day for a year. You admit that we can do better, and I would ask whether the religious sector and civil society can assist in this regard. Thank you. Thank you. You even repeated uh, great Honorable Swart. Uh, Deputy President. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Deputy Speaker, for the very good question that what can we do to help? Well, to help the catch-up program, the challenge is that there are a missing number of people that are out there in our communities that have got TB. The task is that we must go out there and find those people. Finding these people, introduce them to treatment and ensure that they take their treatment until they recover. That's one. Secondly, we must go out there and find the missing HIV uh, affected people. We've got a number of people that have uh, not taken their medication uh, for quite some time. We must find these people and reintroduce them to uh, the system, give them medication, and show that 
we suppress their viral load. Now, that is the additional work that we must do to go out today, screen, test, test for TB, test for HIV and AIDS. Those who have abandoned their medication, reintroduce them to their medication, ensure that they take their medication until they are healed. Ensure that they take their medication uh, continuously and they don't default. Well, with regards to COVID-19, there are trained medical practitioners that will continue to, to do the screening, to do the testing, but with the TB and uh, HIV and AIDS, um, if there are home-based care that have been trained to screen and test those people, they will be out there. So if there are those people that are willing to help, we can introduce these people to the Department of Health so that they are guided on how best to help. But this is how far we want to take the catch-up plan so that we don't leave these two uh, ailments, this pandemic, behind. HIV and AIDS and TB. Thank you very much. Deputy President, uh, honorable members, that concludes questions to the Deputy President. I thank you, honorable Deputy President. And that concludes the business the day the house is adjourned. You might now go home and have a rest